Um, I want us to, uh, this morning, I want to start off uh, very different than I normally start this off. And I want to um, talk about something here. And I just want to ask uh, for, one, your graciousness and just humility and understanding as um, I want to un- unpack a, uh, just a difficult thing right now in our, our culture. And I'm well aware of our church and how our church approaches so many things differently. And so many of you have different backgrounds, which is such a beautiful thing. It's a gift uh, at this church. But nonetheless, there are things uh, that time to time we feel like, man, we need to, we need to help. We need to uh, provide some answers, some clarity. And so, um, as you all know, I'm assuming, uh, as you know, Roe versus Wade was overturned by the Supreme Court, which pushed uh, abortion rights back to uh, the state uh, level. Now, when something happens that's a, a cultural tipping point, and this for sure is. We, and when I say we, I'm saying Jesus followers. We as Jesus followers, we have to ask ourselves, when something like this happens, how do I think rightly about it? How do I think biblically about this? And then how do I biblically respond to it? Okay? And, and, and the challenge with that is in doing so, I have to, as a Christian, I have to make a decision that I'm going to elevate what the Bible says above my political ideology, which is really, really tough right now. Amen. I have to elevate the Bible and what the Bible says above cultural trends which culture is absolutely moving and changing at unprecedented rates. I have to be able to elevate scripture above peer pressure, which you're going to feel with anything right now. We have to be able to elevate a biblical perspective in response, even above these extreme headlines that we get, because right now that's what you're getting when it comes to news is you're getting extremes and, 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 and those extremes are by design created to get a dramatic reaction from you because that generates what? Clicks, which generates money. And so I have to elevate the Bible, even from these extreme uh, headlines that I see. And then maybe even more difficult is I have to elevate God's word even above my own personal desires or biases, which we all have. Amen? Every single one of us has things we want to believe, right? Things that we desire to be true. Uh, Every one of us, by how we were raised or the things we've experienced, um, we have biases towards certain things. 
And so when it comes to thinking well, thinking biblically about these things, we have to be able to elevate God's word. If we're a Jesus follower, we have to be able to elevate God's word above all of these other things. And when it comes to this topic in particular, it is so important. Uh, in fact, it's so important. There was no way that, you know, I was gone last week. I, I will never be the pastor that has like Ian or one of our other pastors have a conversation like this with you because that's just messed up. Um, I will, you will always hear that from me. And, and, and in particular this, because it has affected so many people and so many of you, even in this room. And for me, when I approach this topic, I, and, and it, it honestly gets me emotional. I, I just think and I see all of these faces of women, uh, of girls, of, of teenagers that have met with me the last almost 20 years to share what has happened, what they're going through, what they're wrestling with. And some of those have been, I don't know what to do. I need help. What do you think I should do? To, I've had an abortion. What, what does moving forward look like? What does God's word say? What, what does God think of me? And so it's impossible for me to just separate this conversation from all of these these, these faces and these incredible people that I've met and had some of the most difficult conversations with. And it's really reshaped how I view this in the grace that I need to have. Because you never know what someone's been through or what they're going through. But I think it's, it's so important for us to be able to approach this and go, God, how do I biblically think about this? How do I biblically respond? And, and so I wanted to just take a moment. This isn't my sermon, okay? I know it's kind of turning into that, but it's not. I wanted to just take a moment here and provide us some helpful biblical perspective in, in how to think well and how to think when it comes to a Christian response to this. And so let me just kind of break this down for us this morning. When it comes to just even Christianity as a whole, Christians have historically placed a sacred value on children, the born and unborn. Uh, as I preached a couple weeks ago uh, out of First Peter, I believe it was two or three weeks ago, um, in those times when Peter is writing the letter to uh, these churches, these Jesus followers uh, spread out all throughout the Roman Empire. At that time, kids were essentially seen as property. They were essentially commodities uh, and, and looked at, at for what can I gain from that? And, and, and so if they were unwanted during that time, they were literally, they were cast aside in, in fact, when a child was born, if they didn't like, I mean, they, the hair color, uh, it, it was done. It was discarded. In fact, outside of the city of Rome, there were literally piles of unwanted babies. And, 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 and so this isn't just like this brand new uh, topic. And, and so we see throughout scripture, the new, in the New Testament, the church's response and what the church, is, the church was known for 
historically was rescuing those very babies. The churches uh, uh, there in those areas were known for sneaking out and going and taking those babies in and not only raising and rescuing them, but then bringing them into this new thing, this new group of people called the church and treating them as a valued part of the community, which was completely countercultural. Throughout scripture, we read how God is miraculously involved in the womb. In Job 31, 15, Job says, did not he who made me in the womb make him? And did not one fashion us in the womb? In Psalm 139, 13, a very popular verse that you've probably heard, it says, for you formed my inward parts You knitted me together in my mother's womb. And then Isaiah 44, 24, the prophet says, thus says the Lord, your redeemer, who formed you from the womb. I am the Lord who made all things, who alone stretched out the heavens, who spread out the earth by myself. And then, and then lastly, in, in Luke chapter one, verse 15, an angel appears to Elizabeth, Mary's cousin, Mary, the mother of Jesus, and tells her about this child. And, 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 and the angel says in Luke chapter 1, 15, for he will be great before the Lord. He must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit. It says, even from his mother's womb. And do you know the first person to identify Jesus, it was John the Baptist in the womb. From Sarah to Hannah, Elizabeth, and Mary, the mother of Jesus, we see God actively at work in the womb, demonstrating how he cares about children in the womb. We also read in scripture that our bodies do not belong to us. Now, this is a biblical truth that pushes against many current cultural trends. I mean, this is a big one. What we read in scripture is, and one of this, I just read this, is God is Lord over all creation. So God is Lord, he is creator over all creation. We read that we've been bought with a price, right? So the reality is I've been bought with a price. So, so I don't own me anymore. Right? So, so now someone else I've given ownership to my Lord and savior. And so I am called as a result of that to what, to honor him with my body. And we also read in scripture how our bodies, not only are they not our own, but now they house somebody. Our bodies are now a temple of the Holy Spirit, which is incredible. And so we're called to do our best to protect and preserve the the sanctity of life, these developing children made in the image of God. But this also means as a church that we need to care about not only supporting these mothers and these children in birth, but also in life. See, there was about 10 years ago, this 
this, this narrative that I kept hearing about Christians, and it was essentially that Christians only care about uh, the birth and keeping a, a, a child alive, but then they don't care after that. And we, uh, as, as, as a church, we need to care deeply about supporting these mothers and these children after the birth. Amen? And this is done by, by doing what? By giving, by serving at organizations that love and serve women. And, and then through our service, our personal service, our, our own, our hospitality in our homes, with our resources, with our finances, and the care that we're called to give as Jesus followers to draw alongside these women during these difficult and often lonely times, that's our call. We are called to respond in that way. Our love for mothers and these children must be felt by our actions, and it must continue after the birth. We are to lay our lives down for each other, we read in Scripture. We're to what? Bear one another's burdens. And so I pray, my prayer is that this church would be excellent at that. Excellent. And as I'm thankful for the lives saved as a result of this ruling, I pray that Ecclesia would be a church that women can come and experience hope, healing, or just help, regardless of their background, what's happened, or what they've been a part of. We are called to reflect the example of Jesus. Amen? And that's it. Let's pray. Amen. So in 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 18 through 22 is what we're looking at uh, today. And uh, as Ian uh, shared last week, uh, he kind of ended on how we're, we're called to, uh, as Jesus followers, suffer rightly or in a right way. We're supposed to actually experience suffering for doing good, not for doing evil. And um, as we think about just what we've been unpacking, Peter, the writer of this letter, has written this letter to Jesus followers who are scattered throughout the known world. They're in these churches and they're just desperately seeking out advice in, in how to live for him, how to follow him uh, in the midst of a culture that was totally against being a Christian. And so they're experiencing this opposition uh, in their homes uh, between husband and wife. Uh, they're experiencing it at work. They're, they're experiencing it politically. And they're just asking, how in the world do I live for Jesus in this? And guys, that's the same question we're trying to answer, right? And, and so here he is writing to them um, and giving them guidance. And, and in light of what he's just said in verse 17 about suffering for good, he then gives them the perfect example in verse 18. And this is what we read. It says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. Okay, so uh, in verse 17, Peter wrote once again about suffering for good uh, rather than doing evil. And then here in verse 18, he gives us the, the example of Jesus. Now, Jesus, as we read here, Jesus is the one. He is the one that is just. 
the one that was, though, treated unjustly. Uh, why was he treated unjustly? So that he could die for the unjust, which is you and I, in order to what it says, bring them to God. In Isaiah 53, uh, 6, it says, All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all, the righteous for us, the unrighteous. He died as a substitute for you and for me. And as we looked weeks ago at 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 24, it says, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. And, and, and when he talks about this, this phrase here, bringing us to God, this is a, a technical term that, that means gain audience at court. So because of the work of Jesus on the cross, we now have access to God. Okay, Ephesians 2.18, it says, for through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So now we are able, literally this imagery of, of the throne and this, and this court, and we're able to now walk in there. Have you ever walked into a, a place and maybe you, you weren't even supposed to be there and you snuck in and it was just like this incredible place. And you're like, wow. You're like, no, I've never seen that. Well, if you have, when we think about entering the throne room of God, we had no business being there. But through Jesus, the door has been opened. In fact, as Jesus died, what happened? The temple veil uh, was torn in half, symbolizing that there is a new way to God through Jesus. Through his death, we've been brought to God. The sin which caused alienation from God has been removed and then we see this expression where it says made alive by the spirit, which means that his resurrection was through the power of the Holy Spirit. And so within the context of what we're reading, um, Jesus himself modeled perfectly this mindset that we're called to have. That the, that the suffering that we may experience in this life, it cannot overtake the eternal expectations that we're called to live with and the eternal perspective that we get to look forward to, right? Jesus went through that temporary suffering and pain for what? For you and I to be able to be with him for eternity. That is incredible, you guys. It's incredible. And so he modeled this to us. And then we go to verses 19 and 20, and it says this in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Okay, so he kicks this off in verse 19. He says what? In which, he says, okay? In which, and so when he says in which, he's referring right back to what we just read. He's referring to the Spirit's work, 
right, that we saw in verse 18. So Christ was not only made alive through the Holy Spirit, but then through the Spirit, we read and go into one of the most complicated sections of Scripture in the whole Bible. Isn't that exciting? Especially for brand new, you've never been to church before, and you're like, oh. It says he went and preached to the spirits in prison. Now, I found it kind of hilarious to hear uh, and study this, you know, in light of what these heroes of, of, of the faith that we look to when we study and what they said. Uh, the theologian Mark, Martin Luther writes in his commentary, a wonderful text is this, and a more obscure passage perhaps than any other in the New Testament, so that I do not know for a certainty just what Peter means. Isn't that encouraging? Another commentator wrote with verses 19 and 20, he said they, can, they, they, they constitute one of the most puzzling and intriguing texts in the New Testament. Okay, so now that you're really encouraged and you're like, well, what is, you know, so where, what are we supposed to stand on? Um, we don't know. Okay? Now, there are certain sections in Scripture, you guys, that we are not going to be able to fully understand till we are looking at our Savior face-to-face -face for all of eternity. There just are. Where he needs to be clear to you and I, he is. But there's certain sections of Scripture that, that you look at, and, and I'm telling you, like, spiritual giants have studied, have gone through and gone, man, I'm not sure. I am not sure. And so when we get to any place like that in Scripture, our goal is not to go, well, where do I land? And how do I make sure I'm right where I land? We need to approach it with humility, knowing I may be wrong where I land. And that's okay as long as I do my due diligence in studying it. He says, study to show yourself approved unto God, a workman accurately handling the word of God. Amen? And, and so that's what we're called to do. And so what I'm going to share with you guys on these verses uh, is my best attempt um, and my best formed opinion. Everyone say opinion. opinion. Perfect. Now you're all clear. So you don't have, you can't email me. All right. <laughs> so let's walk through this. Now, when we talk about where people land on these verses, there are generally, generally two schools of thought. Okay, one is that Christ went to Hades. Okay, now Hades, remember, we're not talking about um, the lake of fire, right? The eternal uh, destination for those that reject Christ, right? Uh, we're talking about Hades here. So one view is that Christ went to Hades in spirit between his death and resurrection and proclaimed the triumph of his work on the cross, okay? You're like, I'm already spinning. So, in other words, in his spirit, after, he, uh, after his death and resurrection, uh, this belief is that he went down there uh, to all of these uh, spirits awaiting final judgment and declared victory. Okay, that's one view. The second interpretation of this passage is that Peter is describing what happened in the days of Noah. It was the spirit of Christ who preached through Noah to the unbelieving generation 
before the flood. Okay, so, so those are the two major schools of thought when it comes to this section. And so what are the issues here that we're unpacking? Well, the issues are, are, are first of all, who are the spirits in prison, right? You go, who are these things or people, right? So who are the spirits in prison? Are they unbelievers who have died? Are they Old Testament believers who uh, have died? Are they, are they, are they fallen angels, the next, the next question, the next issue is, what did Christ preach? He went down there and preached. What did he, what did he preach to these spirits? Was it second chance for repentance? Was it uh, just, he preached completion of his redemptive work? Was, was it a final condemnation? Aha! Like, what, what was it? And then lastly, when did he preach? Right? Was it in the days of Noah through Noah? Was it between his death and resurrection? Or was it after his resurrection? And you guys, various answers have been given to all of these questions. But taken by itself, that first phrase, the spirits in prison, this could in and of itself refer to human spirits or fallen angelic spirits in hell. This is already sounding just crazy, isn't it? Is your mind just, you know? But here's what is very helpful and what is helpful in forming an opinion. Verse 20. Verse 20 really helps us gain some clarity uh, into who he is talking about. What does it say there in verse 20? It, it says, because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. So the spirits in prison are those who didn't respond to Christ's preaching through Noah. It, 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 it's those who, who God, it says, waited patiently for, and he was super patient with them. Waited patiently for them as Noah was building uh, the ark because Noah didn't exactly have this construction crew uh, and, and, and all these people, all right? Uh, and, and so God waited patiently for these people. And so these were the people that Noah preached to who heard the warning day after day of, impending, uh, of an impending flood and the promise of salvation through this ark that he was building, through a relationship with God. And so these are the people that rejected that message the people that were swept away in the flood. And so when he's talking about those spirits, these are now the disembodied spirits that are there in prison awaiting the final judgment. And, and so this verse may be stated, and this could be helpful for you uh, if we read it this way, by whom the Holy Spirit, he, Christ, went and preached through Noah to the spirits now in prison, Hades. Now, once again, the content of what he preached was what? It was repentance. Turn to God. Come to God. 
And, 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 and why I believe this makes sense is because it fits within the framework of the larger context of 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 13 through 22, right? There's parallels uh, from Noah's life and ministry to the readers that Peter is writing to. When you think of Noah's situation, uh, Noah, Noah and his family were what? They were the minority when it comes to obeying God, right? Like there was nobody else, right? So, so just as Peter's readers are feeling like, like, like there's nobody else, we're the minority here, he brings them back to the example of Noah and is like, listen, Noah, it was just his family. People weren't responding, and not only were they not responding, it was a hostile environment. He was amongst all of these people that didn't believe, uh, that wanted nothing to do with him, and they were, they were wicked. And yet we see Noah faithfully and boldly witness, which is what Peter encourages his readers with. We also see here God patiently waiting, don't we, through Noah's ministry. And just as God was patiently waiting then, so the, the, the readers that are, are listening and taking this in, they're understanding and knowing that God is being patient right now with them and the culture and the world that they live in so that some will turn towards him. And then lastly, we see how Noah was finally saved. What an encouragement that would be for the readers, knowing that, man, this is tough, uh, difficult, it's isolating, but at the end of the day, Noah was saved, and Peter is continuing to highlight what? Eternity, this new life, this new hope. And so this passage, just as it did then, should encourage you and I today to be bold, even though we may be few. Because at the end of verse 20, Peter shares that how many people were saved through the water? How many? Eight. Eight. Eight people. What a successful run of ministry for Noah. Right? And they were all his family. Okay, like, I'm just putting myself there. Guys, the dude preached for over 100 years and only his family believed. I've been here five now. If I walked out of here tomorrow and it was only my wife and my kids that believed, we wouldn't be like, wow, God is good. Man, he's worked. Whew. We would go, oh, I am a failure. Sorry, kids. Daddy clearly is not skilled in this. Where was the elder board to tell him that? <laughs> right? I mean, if literally, after all those years, guys, we would say, judging success in ministry, in our lives, in our witness, we all would classify Noah as what? A failure. We would say he wasted his time. God wasn't working in him. No one was responding. So it's a clear sign that Noah is, should not be the spokesperson for God, right? That's what you and I think. That's what we would have thought. And yet we see a totally different narrative here, don't we? 
And, and, and so as these people are listening and they're reading and they're being brought back to the example of, of, of Noah, I mean, you got to remember that these are suffering Christians right now. And they're, they're sitting there and they're new to faith and they're wondering why, if this is the right faith, if following Jesus is right and, and, and all these things come about because of it, why in the world should they be suffering versus reigning, Right? So they're having these questions. Guys, these are questions you and I ask. If this is, a lot of times we will gauge and judge a decision based upon what? The success of it, the the wealth it produces, the health it produces, right? So we ourselves will judge something based upon what it gives me, how it benefits me, right? And, and, And so they're assuming, and some of you have done this, You've assumed, well, if I go all in with God, he's going to bless my business. If I go all in with God, he's going to heal my daughter, my son. He's going to heal me, right? These are all thoughts we have. And maybe they wondered if this Christian faith was, was right, why were there so few of them, right? If it's, if it's right, why aren't more people believing? Have you ever thought that? Man, I think this all the time. Why, why are more people believe? I mean, to be honest, I want to just slap people sometimes. Believe, believe. Now, I've never done that. <laughs> so I want to be clear. But I've wanted to. And so Peter goes, listen, Jesus. Let's look at Jesus for just a second. He suffered for doing the right thing to the point of being killed. But let me remind you that it was through that very act that then he was raised up from the dead and glorified in heaven. And so for you, the pathway to glory is actually going to be through the path of suffering. And then he says, oh, Jesus is the perfect example. Let me tell you about Noah, who for 120 years preached faithfully and warned that God was going to uh, destroy uh, the world with water. And the thanks he got for his service was mockery and rejection. And so the listeners to this letter are like you and I going, oh, this is not great. But then he reminds them as well that what? Noah was rescued. He was rescued through the flood. And we need to remind ourselves of that, that there is rescue. And we also need to remind ourselves that, you know what? There's a reason they write only eight people responded. Only eight people. You guys, characteristically in the world's history, the majority hasn't been right when it comes to Christianity. Okay? True believers are usually the small group of people. In fact, I have doubts about myself when I find a lot of people are agreeing with me. To be honest, I go, am I still following Jesus? It seems like a lot of people are believing what I believe right now. 
right? We are uh, the small group, right? We're, and it literally tells us that that's how it's going to uh, be. And, and yet, uh, as this small group of, of believers, ones who are going to struggle, who culture is going to go against, who uh, are, are, are going to have to stand for our faith and, and trust in God when, when, when people are going to say the opposite thing about us and judge us and critique us and make up all these accusations of, about us, all these things, we have to just remember ultimately that we will be saved. We will be saved. Eternity is waiting, and, 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 and I love uh, not only the reminder that, that, that listen, it's okay to, to sometimes know that, that you're alone. Sometimes that's actually affirmation from God that you're doing what you're supposed to do. And, and, and like I said, this, this is really tough. This is really tough, and, and to be honest, it's really personal for me because Man, I'll tell you what, this season of my life as, as just being a pastor and in my, what I do as a profession, um, I am seeing friends, I'm seeing pastors left and right just quit. Just, I'm done. I'm done. I didn't sign up for this, this criticism, the attacks. I didn't, I didn't sign up for this divisiveness. This is just, this is too much. I'm not getting the payoff that I saw before this COVID craziness and all of that. And, and it's just, I'm just empty. I'm over it and I am done. And you guys, we have to remind ourselves because it's not just pastors that feel this way. You guys, every single one of us, we're, we're all called to share our faith. We're called to disciple. We're called to live for Christ. We're called to be a light. And you know what? It's a really difficult time to do that and, 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 and you're going to be tempted to judge or gauge your success off of people's responsiveness. And I'm telling you, by the authority of Scripture, you've got to guard your heart from that. You have to. Look at Noah. Look at him. Okay? Over and over and over again, faithful, and yet the outcomes just weren't happening, were they? And so, you guys, here's, here's the challenge you and I need to be faithful. We need to be faithful with our friends, praying for them, for their salvation. We need to be, we need to be praying for our family, for our kids, uh, for our parents, for our grandparents, for our grandkids. We need to not give up in sharing our faith and being a witness to our roommates, to our spouses, uh, to our coworkers. And we cannot be distraught or give up if we're not seeing tangible outcomes. You guys, God is working. He's at work. If Noah held himself to the same standard, the ark would never have been built. Okay, it would have been done, everything. God would have just been like, well, that didn't work out. So much for my perfect track record. So stop. Stop measuring yourself like that. You have no idea the impact you're making, even though you may not even see it. Uh, I was doing a wedding last night in Portland, and this this wedding was was different because I was, all the groomsmen were either college football stars or they were they were still playing like the NFL. And so here I am, this twig, <laughs> and 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 these guys are just like like the biggest humans on the planet, you know. And and so and I'm like average. I mean, I'm not I don't stand out, but I mean I, I just like. 
Come on, you know? And, and so I'm doing this, this, uh, this wedding. And the night before the wedding, I'm at this rehearsal dinner. And the groom who's getting married, uh, he had tragically lost, he tragically lost his dad um, right before he, as he was going to college to play football. And it was remarkable during this rehearsal, his best friends are, are there and, and some of them grew up with this guy in Southern California and they get up there. And I mean, we're talking big, strong dudes. And they look at him and one by one, they just start breaking down. And they look at him and they just say, your dad was my hero. You have no idea the impact your dad made on my life. The decisions I've made, the faith I have is because of your dad. And I heard that over and over again. And he had never heard that from his best friends. And it was just such a reminder that you have no idea what God is doing through your life, through your words, through your faithfulness, through your witness. That's just under the surface, but you have to stay faithful. God is at work. He promises that. But can we stay faithful even in the isolation, the difficult seasons, the seasons when, man, it just doesn't seem like people are listening to me. Can we stay faithful? Can we be inspired even by a guy like Noah? And guys, what, what, what we see here is, at the end of verse 20, he talks about these souls were saved through water. And, and it's not that they were saved by water, right? In fact, when you look at the story of Noah, you go, nah, the water actually took people out. Okay, so the water was judgment, but the water, as we look at it, is it wasn't the means of salvation because of the people that were in the water drowned. But we look at this in the context of the passage. The ark that was built was what? This place of refuge. It was this image of, of, of Jesus who bore the brunt of sin, right? Just as the ark, it bore the brunt of all of the water, right? And yet it took them through the water. It literally took them through the water to a renewed creation. And that is what Christ does in our lives. And then we go to verses uh, 21 and 22. And it says, baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you. Not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. Okay, so if, if, if our understanding, once again, of how they're using this analogy of escaping through the water in verse 20 is correct, then, then what it's saying here when it, when it says which, uh, in, in, in verse 21, it says baptism, which corresponds to this, what is it drawing us back to? It's drawing us back to that rescue through the water that we were just talking about. Now, how does baptism correspond to escaping through the water? Um, and, and more confusing is Peter now saying that you're saved through baptism? 
Because Steve, I was here two weeks ago and you said the opposite of baptisms. So what is it, right? Well, first of all, it can't mean that the water saves us. Because Jesus said what? I am the way in John 14, 6. I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. No one comes to the Father but through me, right? If it was through water, we would hand squirt guns out to all of you as you left and encourage you to spray your neighbors, right? That's what we would say. If it's by water, go for it. Soak them, right? So it's not that. It, it, it can't be faith plus baptism because that would mean that Jesus's work wasn't finished when he clearly said on the cross what? It is finished. See, the thief on the cross as well, he, he wasn't baptized, and yet we read these uh, words in Luke 23, 43, in response to his belief, it says, and he said to him, truly, this is Jesus talking, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Have better words ever been spoken? And he wasn't baptized. And then in Acts chapter 10, there's the Gentiles in Caesarea receiving the Holy Spirit as they believed, as proof of their belief and receiving salvation. And it says then after that, afterwards, then they were baptized. And so here then Peter also helps us to, to when he says, and, and it saves you not as, do you see what he says here? As a removal of dirt from the body, in other words, it's not as this outward physical act which washes dirt from the body that is, that, that, that's not the part that, that saves you. But, but as an appeal to God for a clear conscience, he says. So this is as an inward spiritual transaction between God and the, and the individual, a transaction symbolized by the outward ceremony of baptism. Okay, so, so he's like, it's not like this washing of dirt, like the water's just gonna, gonna, gonna take it away and, and make, you, make you right. He says, no, it's, it's, it's through an appeal to God for a clear uh, conscience. And so, in other words, baptism now saves you, but not the outward physical ceremony of baptism that we celebrated two weeks ago, but the inward spiritual reality that baptism is a picture of, that baptism represents. So Peter guards us with that next statement, guards us against attributing God's saving power through just the physical ceremony of baptism. And when we read uh, an appeal to God for a clear conscience, it's another way of saying uh, a request for forgiveness of sins and a new heart. I mean, guys, when, when God gives someone who is far from him, who was against him, a clear conscience, that person is experiencing the assurance that every sin has been forgiven and that they stand in a right relationship with him. Isn't that an amazing feeling? That is a clear conscience. You guys, we, we have been crucified with him, buried with him, and then brought back to life with him. That is the imagery. That is the picture of baptism. And then Peter reminds us what? That this was all made possible through what? The resurrection of Jesus. All of this was made possible through Christ resurrecting from the dead. And then he finishes in verse 22 with what? He alludes to Christ's ascension into heaven. And why is that important? Because Jesus has gone to heaven and is now seated at the right hand of God where he rules 
with absolute authority over all spiritual powers. Guys, that is reassuring. That is inspiring. That gives you the peace. That gives you the confidence to move forward. So what's our, what's our takeaways here today? One is this. If I'm a Jesus follower, I need to expect that there's going to be opposition for doing good. I need to know that. So I'm not surprised by that, so I'm not thrown off by that. I need to know that. The next point is, I need to serve God by faith and not trust in the results. I need to trust in God and place my faith in him, not in these desired results and outcomes. Once again, Noah served God faithfully, and yet his family was it. But you guys, God honored him. And let's never forget that Jesus appeared as a total failure when he hung on the cross, didn't he? They would have viewed that as the greatest failure, and yet his death was the opposite. It was supreme victory. And lastly, we can be encouraged because we now are identified with Christ's victory, which gives us victory, which gives us hope and allows us to move forward well. Amen? And so, church, let's go. Now's not the time to play a pity party. Now's not the time to judge, evaluate our lives and, and the successes and failures or even the success rate of my testimony. It is a time for us to be faithful, to cling to Jesus and to pursue his calling, to be lights in this community and to live for him well. Amen? Let's pray.